Spark Media presents Cosmic Creatures by Jason Kent Nord. Performed for you by Adam Anagnostu, Mike Kelly, John Yonker, and Luke Langfeld. Sound design by Dan Steffens. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the episode notes for more detailed descriptions. And now, Episode 7, Entanglement. I'm not sure if the presence of the muscle cat carcass gives me confidence or pause in venturing out. We're supposed to just trot over to a neighbor's house and convince them that some military man ordered everyone to evacuate the neighborhood because extraplanetary animals are on the loose? Yeah, this is going to go great. Inevitably, it will be revealed that I'm the freak responsible for the creatures being here. More judging eyes beholding my weirdness. There's only so much I can take. The thought of fleeing, slipping off into the forest, and whatever fate it holds for me is tempting. Everyone might be better off without me. And yet, there's a force being exerted on me. Like protons and neutrons whizzing around in an atom, thoughts buzz around my consciousness, protesting any retreat into misery. You've wallowed in gloom and despair enough already. Your friends care about you, my battered hopes say. They're just being nice, my damaged psyche retorts. Poking through these emotions, however, is a new, daring calculation that challenges me, whispering, there shouldn't be too many creatures left. I think we should listen to the cops. Fitch interjects, yanking me into the moment. Over the military? Counters Nick. Hell yeah. My uncle always preaches about buying local. And I buy the locals. We should stay inside. Go ahead, says Ellie. Stay. Enjoy dealing with another one of those all by yourself. She points at the muscular cat's corpse. That shuts him up. He can only whimper and groan. Nick looks pensive. Finally, he goes over to the beast, bends down and retrieves the axe lodged in its skull with a firm tug. He wipes the blade across the thing's furry hide. Ellie stares him down, grimacing. What? Nick responds. Not running out there unprotected. To cross the street? Ellie challenges. We don't know who is home or how many doors we have to knock on before someone believes us, Nick defends. I call the gun, Fitch declares. There is no gun, Ellie responds, but Fitch is already over at a back cabinet in the corner of the garage, from which he pulls out the BB gun. He displays it for Ellie as a silent boast to show she's wrong. You know that's a BB gun, right? Ellie snickers. I can at least shoot something's eye out, Fitch counters. Ellie shakes her head. No, you guys... Someone is going to get hurt. It's what we're trying to prevent, Nick points out. Ellie looks to me for support. As much as I want to be on her side, the attacks so far have me thinking some protection isn't such a bad idea. I, I don't want to hurt anything, I say, trying to strike a balance. But I see Nick's baseball bats wander over and grab one, giving Ellie a reluctant shrug. Ellie sighs and looks around. 
She walks over to the far wall and reaches up to retrieve the long-handled fishing net that hangs there. Net in hand, she wears a defiant expression. She's clearly satisfied taking a principled stand. <laughs> I like that. Nick just rolls his eyes. Oh, great choice, Fitch mocks her. Please, can I stand behind you? Shut up, Fitch, she shoots back. It's a simple thing, but it makes me smile. Let's make this quick, she says, sending us all in motion. With that, Nick gives us a here-we-go glance. We all take a deep breath, and he lifts the garage door open with a fluid heave. Let's try for the Corvers first, he says. We move at a light jog. My eyes dart in every direction. It's crazy. This neighborhood that has been ultra-familiar to me for my entire life now feels like a strange new land. It's like we hopped the fence into the zoo after learning all the animals have escaped their cages. The Corvers live across the street, but given the larger lots and offset driveways, the distance to their door is almost like running a whole block in town. The homes here are actually fairly modest, though. If we were nearer a big city, the... Lots would all hold miniature mansions, but this is Portman. Reaching the street, Nick flips around, checking our flanks. Satisfied, he spins back around and resumes his pace. The Corvo home looks dark, and the usual pickup isn't in the driveway. I reach the door first and punch the doorbell, although I'm hoping Ellie or Nick will do the talking. Fitch, already winded, impatiently joins me and starts banging on the door with heavy knocks. He's clearly more afraid than I thought, which is verified when he tries the locked doorknob. Open up, please, he begs. I'm sorry I egged your house on Halloween. Please just open up. I shake my head. Mr. Corver had questioned me about that incident. I had to assure him that it wasn't me and that I didn't know who did it. I'm surprised Fitch didn't go around bragging about it. Well, although maybe he did. I generally try to avoid him when he's not hanging out with Nick. Nick runs over to the garage door and peeks through the window. They're not home, he announces. Let's try the Altmans. They're in Oregon, says Ellie. The Rasmussens, maybe? How do you know they're in Oregon? asks Nick. Because Mom and I ran into Mrs. Altman at the store last week, and unlike you, I listen to people, she retorts. Well... Nah, is his weak comeback. Come on, Ellie orders, and we're off, sprinting back into the street and toward the neighbors on the far side of the Hagen's home. I continue to keep my eyes peeled, checking treetops, yards, shadows, everywhere. As we reach the middle of the road, Ellie halts abruptly. Nick and I stop too, following her gaze to see what's up. Fitch comes stumbling up. What is it? He blubbers. Shut it! Nick shushes, punctuating it with a swipe of his arm. I see it. Ahead, in the Rasmussen's open window, the curtains thrash about wildly. Flashes of fur race along the windowsill. A cat yowls loudly in full-on fight mode. Something falls from the sill and into the house, out of sight. A moment later... The gremlin thing that attacked Ellie at Quantum reappears on the sill with the cat in its mouth. Perched there, it proceeds to chow down. 
A great wave of apprehension and fear washes through my entire being. I don't want to mess with this thing. Poor Mr. Tiddles, Ellie mourns softly. I agree, but my first concern is not the poor cat. We need to get out of sight before that thing notices us. Fitch whimpers, a bit too loudly. Quiet! Nick admonishes him in another loud whisper. I notice the creature pivot on the sill, turning mostly away from us as it immerses itself in its meal. Come on, I whisper. Let's check the McDermott's. We patter as quietly and quickly as we can back to the far side of the street to the next home. The driveway is largely obscured by bushes and younger pine trees, so it's not immediately apparent if their vehicle's there. As we get closer, I spy the tail end of their old station wagon and quietly point it out. They're home, Nick celebrates in a hushed voice. In a few more strides, we round into sight of the whole vehicle. Confusion breaks our rush. The car door is standing wide open. A purse and a torn, bloody sweater lie on the ground nearby. Fear tingles up and down my spine. This is not an attack on a cat. Oh, I never should have cut school today, Fitch bemoans. I'm focused on what lies in front of us. If that is Mrs. McDermott's purse and sweater, where is she? Did the creature eating the cat do this, or something else. I swallow hard and cautiously creep forward. I feel like I'm trespassing onto a crime scene or stepping into a horror movie. I spy a shoe lying across the yard where it looks like something crashed through the hedge. I'm not going over there. I can't. Thankfully, Nick proceeds carefully in that direction, scouting. Careful, Ellie cautions. The woods grow thicker and darker the farther one would go beyond the hedge. Nick only goes so far, looking. He turns back to us, a hesitant look in his eyes as if asking what we should do. We should get to town and send help, Ellie says, giving us all the conclusion we want. Then, something catches my eye a few feet from the purse. Keys, I declare, reaching down to swipe them up and show them to the others. But who's going to drive? Asks Fitch. A fair question. I'm sure I could, but I'm not that eager. I don't need to screw this up, too. I've had enough of car accidents for a lifetime. I have my permit, Ellie offers as if to settle the question. But you have to be with an adult, Nick quickly counters. A detail that, by his expression, he realizes isn't a real obstacle right now. You want to find Mrs. McDermott's body first? Ellie chides her brother. She's so cool. I almost smile as I toss her the keys. A hissing growl from behind startles us. Looks like that cat didn't last long, because the gremlin is charging across the street and headed right toward us. Fitch panics, squeals, and dives into the car, dropping the BB gun in the process. Nick snatches up the gun, aims, and pulls the trigger. All he gets is an empty click. It hadn't been pumped, so the BB simply rolls out of the barrel. The gremlin now targets Nick and races towards him. Nick pumps quickly two times, but it's too late. The rabid beast launches through the air, heading right for him. At the last moment, the net intercepts the attack, as Ellie defends her brother. The momentum of the creature, however, 
doesn't prevent a collision with Nick that rips the net free from Ellie's hands. The net clatters to the ground, the gremlin upside down and struggling within it. Afraid it may burrow its way out, I react without thinking and pounce onto the handle. I hold it pinned against the ground so the nasty thing stays trapped. But that plan is quickly squashed. The thing has claws, and the net won't hold it for long. I look around for something of use and spot a garbage bin a few yards away. Reacting quickly, I hoist the net with the squirming, thrashing little beast and make a dash for it. Thankfully, the lid to the bin is hanging open. I swing the whole net into the container just as the nasty little thing shreds itself free. It plops down with a thump and an enraged growl. I let go of the net, letting it fall in with the gremlin, and flip the lid up and over to slam it shut. The long handle of the net protrudes at an angle and prevents the lid from closing completely. The gap of an inch or two makes me nervous. Sure enough, the creature jumps up and latches onto the bin's rim, its claws poking out. I desperately hold pressure on the lid so that it won't wiggle loose, positioning myself behind the hitches to keep clear of the lashing claws. The fright must be evident in my eyes as I turn to Nick for assistance. He understands and immediately surveys for something we can use. He locks onto a hose in the yard and runs over to it. His first retrieval attempt is foiled as the length from the spigot stops him feet short of me. He dashes over and furiously unscrews it. The violent jostling of the creature redirects my attention to holding the lid and nothing else. After what seems like hours, Nick finally brings the hose over, and Ellie joins me at my side. Wrapping the hose around the bin to seal it becomes a struggle as we all shout instructions at each other, hindered by the stiff rubber hose slowing us down. Finally, the task is complete, and I let go of the lid. We're all on edge, but slowly begin to calm. We did it. The thing is captured. And we didn't even need to kill it. Although, if one of those creatures had to be sacrificed, I would not have mourned to this one. My sense of accomplishment is reflected in Ellie's and Nick's eyes, and we nervously exchange silent congratulations. Good thing someone brought a net, Ellie goads. Nick rolls his eyes but has nothing to say. He's still breathing hard. Let's go already! Fitch hollers from inside the car. The fact that he watched our skirmish from the safety of the back seat is entirely unsurprising. Yeah, let's go. I readily agree. We've had our share of excitement. Ellie gets in the driver's seat and I go around to the front passenger seat. Nick joins Fitch in the back after running and grabbing the BB gun, axe, and baseball bat. The street lamps are starting to switch on. Fitch remains in a tizzy, urging, Come on, come on, start it! Shut up! Ellie shushes with some rising tension in her voice. Undoubtedly, she has done this before with her parents in the car, but now she's visibly flustered. She takes a moment with her hands hovering over the steering wheel, seemingly trying to force her brain to remember what to do. The key! Turn the key! Nick urges as Fitch continues to whine. Guys! I scold, turning around to shoot them a back-off look. Ellie trembles as she sorts through the keys and sticks the correct one into the ignition. She presses the brake, turns the key, and it starts. The big tank of a station wagon is probably the oldest and biggest car in the neighborhood, and I can feel its eight cylinders rumbling. Ellie surveys the controls like it's an airplane cockpit. Seatbelts, she remembers with a gasp, her eyes going wide. Everyone put on your seatbelt. 
Just go! Fitch nearly shouts. The rest of us buckle up. My hands are shaking, but I get it on the third attempt. Ellie shifts into drive by mistake as we surge forward. She slams on the brakes, stopping just short of the garage door. Fitch's face smacks into my headrest with a fair amount of force. <laughs> oh, fine! Fitch concedes. Seatbelt. Ellie shifts into reverse and eases off the brake. She applies a little too much gas and we fly back, hurtling onto the street, and screech to another hard stop in an odd angle. My body bounces off my seat back and the seatbelt locks up, restricting the surge forward. Ellie starts babbling apologies. Dang, Nick complains. Are you trying to kill us? There's enough things out here that are already trying, Fitch piles on. Sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. Ellie apologizes again. I've got it. She flips the blinker on, albeit with questionable necessity, and after a couple of forward lurches, and gets us pointed and rolling down the road. The continuation of the blinker soon becomes the last remnant of the chaotic start to our journey. Blinker, I gently note. Not helpful, Kale, she mutters before flipping it off. She stares fixedly ahead on the darkening road, her back hunched and knuckles turning white on the wheel. I debate mentioning headlights, but resist saying it out loud. Instead, I almost involuntarily motion ahead. Just as my lips part to whisper the suggestion, Ellie notices. She finds the headlights and switches them on, and then darts me a look. And with that, we are slowly and steadily on our way to town. This day turned into a shitstorm in a hurry. First, Colonel Harstad confirmed a legit, real-world, here-and-now Alpha-6 mission. Supposedly, there's an inventory of 37 bona fide alien critters, and they're trying to figure out which of them are on the loose. I can't begin to imagine how they showed up in some remote lab. Nobody can figure it out. Every time I relay the info, I get blowback that it must be mutant animals from some immoral lab experiments. But I've got to convince them of what even I can't believe. Sorry, buddy. It's aliens. It would be nice to have the damn inventory, but they're still working on it. Meanwhile, the caravan arrived 20 minutes ago, and I got to star as an idiot while directing them to their posts. No, I can't give you the inventory I just mentioned. No, I don't know what they look like. I don't know. If it looks weird, kill it. And so on. Then there's the radio traffic we're picking up from the locals. Kids, no less. They're engaged, taking casualties, and I'm here babysitting this checkpoint despite there being almost no traffic. It's a stage one strategy to set up a perimeter and only engage on a come-to-us basis. I sent the bulk of the quarantine supplies up to Colonel Harstad, who needs to contain things at ground zero. Until we get the perimeter established and some more intel, we are relegated to the sidelines. Literally. I understand, but I hate it nonetheless. I'm completely out of the fight. Worse, every squirrel and bird I see is drawing my rifle scope like I'm some hyper-alert crackhead. It's embarrassing. Halo Force finally has a mission. We are finally on the front lines of the big one, 
and I'm triggered by bunny rabbits while dealing with confused old ladies heading to town for their groceries. Minutes ago, we saw some weird birds fly out of town to the east, but it was tough to identify if they were alien from this distance. Because they were flying into the hot zone and not out of it, I let them go to prevent any panic and avoid hitting any innocents downrange. The old conversion van approaching now is only the tenth vehicle I've seen so far, not counting the military caravan. Whoever is driving seems to be crapping their pants. They've stopped 20 yards short of barricade, showing no signs of rolling forward. Come on, buddy, I motion. But he just sits there, idling. Guess I'm going to him. Expecting some baffled yokel, I get a surprise. Jesus, what's with his face? The man has two black eyes and a massive scabbed-up scar covering a good chunk of his head. It's not fresh, so it's not alien-inflicted. Looks like he lost a fight. You need to turn back, sir, I say. This area is under quarantine and emergency orders are in effect. Everyone is to shelter at home until further notice. Now turn around, go home, and stay there, or you will be arrested. Actually, we don't arrest people, we detain them. But I don't need to explain it to him. Just like I don't need to explain that this valley is likely going to be a barbecue pit pretty soon, and I'm sparing his life. No, no, he replies, as if I'm wrong. I'm passing through, I'll be long gone down the road. You don't understand what a quarantine is, do you, Einstein? I jab. Passing through? Is that how these things work? I can recognize I'm taking my frustrations out on him, but I really don't care about offending some beat-up loser. Everything out there stays out there. Everyone in town stays in town. Look, I live out there. My kid is home by himself, he claims, but he's not really selling it. Go back to work then, or the bar, or wherever the hell you just came from. Orders are to shelter in place, buddy. All the kids are being held at the school, likely overnight. You can call and check on him. What the hell is going on anyway, he asks. You're starting to piss me off is what, I say glaring. He appears wounded in a way that catches me off guard. No tough exterior like I expected. The beating must have humbled him, and he's even a bit teary-eyed. Perhaps there's more to this than meets the eye. Maybe he's dealing with some mental health issues. I sigh and try to ease up. Look, buddy, there are some infected animals on the loose attacking people. No movement is allowed except you turning around, going back where you came from, and staying there. I back away from his window and stroll over to join one of my lieutenants in front of his vehicle. He sits there, idling, staring at us. Shit. Is this bastard really this stupid? I raise my rifle and point it at his front grill. The lieutenant does the same. He gets the message, raises his hands apologetically, and reverses. He stops, turns, and putters slowly back into town. Well, that was exciting. Look at me now, saving lives. Mom would be so proud.
Outside, helicopters chopping loudly and flying low overhead. From what I understand, they are moving large tarps over the facility. There are no windows in the control room or capture bay. I appreciate that efforts are being taken to minimize any damage that may follow from our surprise arrivals. Dr. Mintz and I are finishing suiting up in hazmat gear outside the capture bay's doors, and it's a bit unnerving to have Colonel Harstead standing there, silently but expectantly supervising us. This mobile bioscan unit will work, but we'll have to circle the whole room, I explain, and then pause. Isn't anyone coming in to protect us? I nod toward the soldiers, none of whom are suiting up. I'm not risking my man, Colonel Harstead replies. I'm ready to burn this place. You want time to check things out? You take the risk. The colonel reaches for his sidearm, and I take an involuntary step back. But to my surprise, he holds it out to Dr. Mintz. I suppose it's a pretty strong gesture from his perspective. I can't imagine military types like to hand over their weapons to civilians. But Dr. Mintz doesn't take it as such an honor. She prickles a bit at receiving the firearm and handles it awkwardly. I can see Colonel Harstead regretting the choice, but holding his tongue. I nod, signaling our readiness to one of the soldiers attending the patchwork door to the capture bay. We need to get moving before Colonel Harstead's patience wears out. I have no doubt he would burn this place to the ground, and we would lose an invaluable trove. The thought pains me to consider. At some point, I need to see about going over his head. We cannot act too rashly. Given the lack of immediate adverse reactions, I figure that quarantining this facility is more sensible than destroying it. A soldier hands Dr. Mintz a radio, and then, with some effort, he and another soldier removed the new door braces that they had replaced our earlier barricade of equipment with. They opened the crudely patched up door a crack, making lots of noise in the process. Dr. Mintz and I exchange an anticipatory glance and enter. We step down onto the capture bay's covered surface into the otherworldly environment, but remain by the door as they push it closed. The sound of the bracing supports being pushed back into place behind it is already highly discomforting, but then we hear two loud, echoing pops. It takes me a moment to understand, and then it hits me. They just used a concrete gun to seal the bracing into place. They sealed us in! I exclaimed to Dr. Mintz. Her eyes are wide in disbelief. What the hell are you doing? She barks into the radio. The radio chirps, and Colonel Harstead's voice delivers a response. Sorry, Doc. You're contaminated. We all are. You're staying in there. In fact, you might as well take those suits off to prove we don't have imminent biological toxins. You get sick, it's over. If not, maybe I could bide a little time. What a jackass. And yet, I get where he's coming from. It totally makes sense. And that just pisses me off even more. Holding back the impulse to spike the scanner into the ground, I barely managed to control my anger enough to set the damn thing down. Treating my mask less kindly, I rip it off and chuck it at the door, letting out a furious curse. We hope you've enjoyed Cosmic Creatures, a Spark Media production. This program was directed and executive produced by H.G. Zeisler. Featuring the voice talents of Adam Anagnostu as Kale Rhodes, Mike Kelly as Russell Rhodes, John Yonker as Dr. Elliot Hagen, 
and Luke Langfelt as Major Roggy. Text copyright 2022 by Jason Kent Nord. Illustrations including cover and episode art by Meredith Tuvey. Sound design by Dan Steffens. Story edits by Emily Nord and H.G. Zeisler. A special thanks to our founding Spark storytellers. Rest assured that no animals, cosmic or earthly, were harmed in the production of this episode. Enjoyed what you heard? Check out more Spark stories and find out more about Spark Media on our website, sparkmedia.com. That's S-P-R-Q-M-E-D-I-A.com. Or check us out on Instagram or Facebook at Spark Media. Links in episode notes. Interested in telling stories? Apply to be a Spark storyteller today. We're looking for writers, editors, composers, voice talent, and more. It takes a village to tell a story, and we need you. Link in episode notes. Audio production copyright 2024 by Spark Media LLC. All rights reserved.